to each of you. Uh, before I begin, I just want to put in a quick plug for our relational disciple training. Uh, that's coming up in uh, just one more week and going to be such a valuable experience for the church. And uh, you can find out more information in your worship folder, but uh, still time to sign up. We've got one more week to go. Uh, love for you to be there. You can sign up on the website right now. You can do that. Uh, you could. Just mark your connection card, but really hope that uh, as many of us as are able to can really make that a priority. That's going to be uh, a big, big deal. Uh, if you've ever been in my office, you know I have a fascination with Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, Wright was a famous architect, uh, perhaps the most famous American architect. Uh, he designed the Guggenheim Museum in New York, Falling Water, among many other buildings. And uh, I'm fascinated with him, not just for his work, but I, I find his personality kind of fascinating as well. He was a genius ahead of his time, and unfortunately he knew it. Uh, he uh, had a level of pride that, to my mind, really hampered some of his best work. And the best example of the collision of his pride and his architectural genius comes from the Imperial Hotel that he designed in Tokyo. Wright began to design the hotel uh, in the early 1900s and right away faced a challenge. How do you make a hotel structurally sound in a place that's so prone to earthquakes? Right? Well, this is where his genius came into play. The, the hotel uh, was set to be built on this 60-foot deep layer of soft mud, not ideal uh, foundation. And so Frank Lloyd Wright came up with the idea to, to build a solid foundation and sort of float it on top of the soft mud. So when earthquakes would shift the mud, the, the solid foundation w- would stay secure. I mean, this was 1910, so really a, a groundbreaking idea, pun intended. So the hotel was built, right? And, and almost immediately after it was finished, Tokyo experienced one of the worst earthquakes in the city's history. Much of the city was leveled, but not Wright's Hotel. And in the aftermath, one of the hotel's investors sent a, a telegram to Wright saying, the hotel stands undamaged as a monument to your genius. Well, it's just what the arrogant architect needed to hear. So the, the, the news about the survival of the hotel and the news of this telegram really solidified Wright's reputation as a genius builder. And that reputation lasted into the 60s. And in the, uh, in the late 60s, things changed at the hotel. The hotel had to be destroyed. It turns out the, the shallow foundation that he built had over time sunk down into the mud and caused irreparable damage to the hotel. So his genius plan, the one that brought him so much pride, the foundation that seemed so brilliant and successful in the short term proved to be the demise of the entire building over time. Maybe you've had a similar kind of experience, had, a, had an idea or a plan that seemed so good it couldn't fail, and then you find out, well, it can fail, and it did fail. And usually in those kinds of experiences, it happens in spectacular fashion, right? God has a way of really humbling us in those kinds of scenarios. I, I can relate to this. When I was a kid, we took a, a family trip to a national park, to White Sands, New Mexico, a very unusual place. It looks like, like snowy hills, but it's in fact gypsum sand, like a little fine powdery white sand, like, a, like sheetrock kind of material. But uh, when you're a kid, it's so much fun because you can sled 
down these hills. You know, growing up in Texas, we didn't have any snow, so we had to sled on sand. That's, that's the way it was. But, uh, but I have very fond memories of this trip and, and sledding down the sand. And several years ago, Ann and I, we took our own kids to White Sands, uh, very excited to show them these sand dunes because all the fun I had sledding there as a kid, I, I was excited to share that with them. And, and uh, they started to sled, but they had kind of a hard time getting started, just couldn't quite get, get moving. And so, well, I was an expert sledder, right? I mean, I've been to the place a grand total of one time. I knew exactly what to do. And so I told those kids, hey, step aside. I grabbed that box lid they were using. See, I told you I was an expert. I got all the right equipment and everything, right? I grabbed that box lid, and I was going to show them how to do it. So I got a running start, and I leaped. And I had visions of just soaring down the powdery hill, thinking of all the memories I'd made as a kid and all the the new memories we were going to make as a family. And so I leaped, and I fell flat right down on my chest. I didn't move an inch down that little hill. And I'm not sure who had a harder time breathing, me, because I knocked the wind out of myself, or my wife, because she was laughing so hard she couldn't quite catch her breath, right? It seems like I suffer from the same problem as Frank Lloyd Wright. I'm not an architectural genius, but I am a person who thought I was a little bit invincible, thought I couldn't fail, and then found out that I could, and I did. Very humbling. And if you're a person like me, and I know that you are, uh, then there's a book of the Bible I want us to look at today, an entire book. We got one service this morning, one week before our next sermon series, and so we have one book I want us to study today, a whole book. Uh, Don't worry, though, it's short. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, only one chapter long. We're going to look at the book of Obadiah, Obadiah. And as we launch into a new year, time of reflection and everything, this book serves as a real warning to us, a warning from kind of an unlikely source. The book of Obadiah is is hidden in some ways. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, just like a page in your Bible, buried in the, the part of your Bible where the pages still crack like they did when you first bought the Bible, right in there, you know? But in some sense, the the hiddenness of the book is the warning. The book of Obadiah warns us against something, a, a disease that we all have, but we don't always recognize. It's a disease that, that, that's subtle and it's sneaky, and we can see symptoms of it all the time, but before we even know what's happened, it pops up. We need to be aware of it. And as we're making plans, as we're thinking about what the new year is going to hold, we want to be mindful of what the Lord would teach us this morning. And so this new year, I want us to explore this sneaky sickness and the subtle symptoms and the solution that we can all put into practice this coming year. So the book of Obadiah, it's a warning, a warning that was originally written to a certain group of people, and the people are described in an unusual way. Look with me, if you will, at Obadiah verse 3. Obadiah is a warning to the people who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. What does that mean? Well, Obadiah was originally written to the nation of Edom. Edom was a a neighbor to Israel, and they lived in an area that's now called Jordan. One of the ancient cities in the area was the city of Petra. 
Petra, that's a word that, that means rock, like when Jesus gives Peter a nickname, Peter, because he's a rock, Peter, Petra, same, same root word there. And so Petra is this area that has a lot of rocks. The whole area is, is rocky hills and, and caverns and things like that. And even if you've never been to Petra, you probably recognize some pictures of it. Uh, you might recognize it from Indiana Jones, uh, the place where Indiana's dad had one of their adventures. And the community of Petra was built right in to these rocky hills, so very easy to defend against enemies, difficult to find. The people who, who lived here had this, this almost magical ability to just disappear into the cleft of the rocks. They stayed hidden from enemies and very hard to attack. And Petro, in fact, was so well secluded that it was only rediscovered in 1812. I mean, this ancient civilization kind of disappeared for a while and it wasn't rediscovered until centuries later. That's how, how hidden they were able to stay, very sneaky. And this, uh, this amazing building that you see not, does not date from Old Testament times, it's from later. But even the, the Edomites who lived in this area when the book of Obadiah was written, they, uh, uh, they had a similar ability to hide in the cleft of the rocks. They had homes that looked a little more like this picture here. So this warning to the Lord, or the warning from the Lord is, is, is to them. It's for people who think they're untouchable. People who think they've crafted the, the perfect plan. Uh, people who don't even realize that they've got this sneaky sickness. They've built their life around self-preservation, but really they're, they're full of pride. The people of Edom, they trusted the rocks to protect them from everything. They were full of pride about their perceived safety. Just like Frank Lloyd Wright, they're willing to bet uh, long-term security on short-term gains. They thought they knew better than anybody else. They were willing to, to disregard God and just trust themselves. So look with me at this warning at the beginning of the book of Obadiah one more time. Verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks, who make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? So this is the warning. It's a warning against pride. And whether you're young or old, weak or strong, ancient or modern, pride is something that is a part of you. Each one of us from the beginning has this sickness. And most of us, we wouldn't even acknowledge that we're prideful, which is why it's a sneaky sickness. But we're all sick with pride. It's the root of so many problems. And as we enter a new year, one of our goals should be to examine our relationship with the Lord. How is it? How can it be better? And each of us, we could probably uh, stand to pray a little bit more, read the Bible with a little bit more regularity, to give more, serve more, all those kinds of things, whatever's on our hearts. But all those are ultimately good things, good desires. But one of the sneaky parts about pride is that it takes those good desires and it reduces them to just boxes on a checklist. I mean, if we're not careful, if we don't heed this warning from Obadiah, we run the risk of reducing our relationship with God to just boxes. We check off a list. Read my Bible? Check. Pray? Check. Every day. In fact, I'm going to give myself a gold star for that one. Giving? Check. Serving? Check. All good desires, but the the sneaky sickness of pride taints those desires. It, It takes the heart out of our relationship with God. We start to trust in the rocks of our routines or our abilities. We don't let God penetrate to the inside. We don't let God into our hearts where the real need is. Yet throughout the Bible, we see over and over, God opposes pride, but he's drawn to humility. 
In fact, even in the, the Christmas story we just experienced, you could see the theme of, of pride and humility over and over again. God humbles himself in the form of the baby Jesus. The birth is witnessed by lowly shepherds, and the, the proud King Herod tries and fails to foil God's plan. Even in one of the, the kind of lesser-known parts of the Christmas story, Mary's song, we call the Magnificat, she says this, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. So so pride, it's something that shows up over and over, all over the Bible, Old and New Testament. And it's one of the reasons that God warns us about it here in Obadiah. It's a message we all need to hear. So if you think that you don't need to hear this message, right? So let's talk about pride. Let's unpack this warning for us a bit. And the book of Obadiah continues. uh, The prophet details some of the ways that these Edomites, these folks who lived in the rocks, displayed pride. And if we're honest, we got the same sickness, and it shows up in the same way for us as it did for them. Our pride shows up in, in five symptoms, five symptoms. And these are all subtle, little ways that pride sneaks into our lives. And so let's look at these five subtle symptoms together. The first one is something that God accuses the Edomites of. He accuses them of violence. You can see that in verse 10, violence. That's the first symptom of pride. And just a bit of background here, this book of Obadiah comes from a time when, uh, when God's people were, were taken captive by Babylon. The city of Jerusalem was besieged, taken captive. God's people were taken off into exile. And at the time, the people of Edom, these, these neighbors of Jerusalem, they were kind of complicit in the crime against God's people. And this word, it's translated violence. It doesn't just mean physical violence, uh, not just overt physical violence, but it also refers to, to, to moral wrong, just, just doing the wrong thing, taking an action that you know is wrong. That's the idea here. And so it might be easy for us, for some of us, to say, well, I, I'm not a violent person. This part's not for me. But that's very dangerous because one of the things about pride is that it's sneaky. Pride will, will, will try to make you resist the truth about yourself. Pride will keep you from hearing what God wants you to hear. So if you're listening and, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't really struggle with pride. If you're tempted to tune out, then that should be its own warning to us. That might well be pride trying to resist what God wants to say to you. And in the same way, if you, you, maybe you don't think of yourself as a violent person, but you are a person that's done something wrong even though you know it was wrong. Jesus himself broadens our understanding of violence. He says this, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So in Jesus' kingdom, anger in your heart is akin to violence. You're you're imagining or you're anticipating something that you know is wrong, but you let your mind and your heart play it out anyway. You have that imaginary confrontation with that, that person at work who wronged you, or you, you give the driver in the next car the old one-finger salute, right? It's the same as physical violence in Jesus' understanding. So even if you're a person who's not physically violent, we can all heed this warning. We all experience this symptom of pride. And it's a subtle symptom because it just can crop up in our mind in the heat of the moment. We feel anger. But a counselor friend of mine has a great saying. She says, you can't stop a bird from flying around your head. And you can't even stop a bird from landing on your head. 
but you don't have to build them a nest. And that's how these subtle symptoms of pride are. You can't stop other people from doing things that you don't like. You can't really even stop yourself from feeling angry sometimes. Sometimes that bird lands on your head. But you can resist the subtle symptom of violence. You don't have to build a nest for that anger and let it live with you, right? So violence shows up in in all kinds of different ways, not always physical violence. But that's the first subtle symptom. The next verse in Obadiah, verse 11, details another symptom of pride. Look at verse 11 with me. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So again, the, the, the book of Obadiah refers to this time when, when Babylon took over Jerusalem, sent God's people into exile, and the, People of Edom, these neighbors of Jerusalem, they weren't the ones who who committed the crime. They didn't attack Jerusalem. But the Lord says on the day when strangers came and carried off the wealth of God's people, the Edomites stood aloof. Another translation says they, they stood aside. They did nothing. This group of people, they were brothers to Israel. They should have known better. They stood and watched while bad things happened. They, they locked themselves up in their houses built in the rocks, and they figured they were safe. No harm would come to them if they just kept their heads down. So one of the subtle symptoms of pride is aloofness, just standing aside, thinking to ourselves, hey, that's too bad what's happening over there to those other people. Oh, better them than me. That's the temptation. Every time we open up the news, isn't it? There's this tragedy, there's bad stuff happening everywhere to somebody else. And we can stand aside and do nothing or we can respond. But I want us to notice the progression of this verse again. Let's read it again. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So it starts with just the simple act of standing aside or or aloof, basically doing nothing. But by the end of the verse, the Lord speaks as if we were one of them, complicit in the violence, in the crime, in the evil. So refusing to come to the aid of someone in need is the same as doing the harm yourself. The Message Bible paraphrase of this verse says this, you stood there and watched, you were as bad as they were. One of the sneaky, subtle symptoms of pride is the simple act of doing nothing, refusing to help when it's the right thing to do, thinking, oh, that's somebody else's problem. Well, that kind of pride, it's just evil in disguise, as if we were one of them, the Lord says. The message also paraphrases another passage that speaks to the same idea, this this subtle symptom of, of standing aside. Look at this. Rescue the perishing. Don't hesitate to step in and help. If you say, hey, that's none of my business, will that get you off the hook? Someone is watching you closely, you know. Someone not impressed with weak excuses. Jesus spoke about the symptom of pride as well. He had a whole parable about it in the story of the Good Samaritan. The first two people to encounter the injured man on the roadside, they just passed on by. They, they stood aside, ignored the problem, didn't want to get their hands dirty. We're all guilty of this in one way or another, but, but there is a tension here. Trying to be engaged in all the needs of the world, that, that's exhausting. It's impossible, really. But doing nothing is not the right choice either. So where do we fall? 
How do we respond in a way that, that, that avoids pride but doesn't err on the side of trying to be the savior to everyone? Because that's not a role either. I appreciate the words of Andy Stanley in this instance. He says, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Right? Sometimes it's, that's the solution to the tension. You can't care for every child in need, but you can care for one or two. You can't show your appreciation to every soldier in the country, but you could show it to one or two. In this way, you're not, you're not standing aloof, but you're not being the Savior. You're just pointing people to the Savior, the one who really has the solution to all the problems. And the key is rejecting your own comfort in favor of doing what's right. That's where this subtle symptom shows up the most, just, just choosing our own comfort over choosing to step in and do what's right. So violence, that's one symptom. Standing aside, another symptom of pride. And the list of symptoms continues in this section in Obadiah. Verse 11 is followed by a, a series of statements that starts off with, you should not. And each of them is the outplay of pride. Each of them is one more symptom of pride. So the next verse, verse 12, says this. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. So there there are three statements here, three symptoms. The first one, looking down on others. It seems like a harmless enough activity. It happens so frequently, we hardly even think about it. But God tells us it's a subtle symptom of pride. And and as you might guess, Jesus himself also has something to say about this symptom. I mean, it's almost like he read the book of Obadiah or something. It's crazy. But Jesus, he actually models this behavior, how to avoid this symptom of pride for us. There's a story in the Gospel of John. Jesus is passing through Samaria, the neighbor of Jerusalem, a different neighbor. But it's another area people avoided. And and Jesus, he doesn't have any pride, so he just goes right through Samaria. And while he's there in John 4, he has an encounter with a woman, the woman at the well, right? And uh, recently in our student ministry, they talked about this passage, this, this encounter Jesus had with the woman at the well. And I love the way that they taught it. I think it's just an easy thing to grab onto and really remember. Uh, Pastor Thad and his awesome team of volunteers, they, they talked about Jesus sitting down with this woman and what a, what a taboo situation that would have been, right? I mean, men and women didn't associate with each other. Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. And this particular woman, she's kind of rough around the edges, living in sin. One more reason that Jesus really shouldn't have associated with her. But, but the way our student ministry talked about this moment, Jesus models something so significant for us. Because uh, we all want to categorize the world, right? One of the big symptoms of pride is this mentality that says it's us versus them. There's, there's categories of people. There's us and others, right? But Jesus, he models such a different and better way to live. Instead of categorizing this woman, he had a conversation. So our student ministry, they talk about this moment and they talk about the idea of moving people from categories to conversations. I love that. See, pride tells us that we are inherently better than they. Pride dehumanizes people and just makes them categories. But Jesus, he sees people as people. He moved this outcast woman from a category into a conversation. That's exactly what God warns us about here in in Obadiah verse 12, not looking down on people, not drawing hard lines between us and them. That's a symptom of pride. There's other symptoms in this verse, verse 12. Look at the verse again. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. 
So the next symptom here is rejoicing in destruction. Other translations talk about the idea of gloating. That's the symptom, gloating, taking joy in other people's suffering. At the end of the day, that's a symptom of pride. We see bad things happening to other people, and we think, it's about time. They really had it coming. But here's the kicker in this story. I mean, if you look at the history of the Old Testament, if you read through the prophets, the Jerusalem, they really did get what they deserved. They had ignored God's warnings over and over. They'd repeatedly turned away from God, even though he told them exactly what would happen to them. The the attack by Babylon, their exile, that was not a surprise to them. They literally had it coming. And yet God tells Edom, this neighbor, don't gloat. Don't take joy in this suffering. It's no excuse to say they had it coming. Unless you live under a rock... See what I did there? Unless you live under a rock, you've probably heard about the video game Fortnite. I've not played it myself, but one of the features of the game is exactly what we're talking about, gloating. You know, you, you, you defeat somebody else in the game and you've got the option to do a gloating dance, right? Fortnite there. Uh, and there's variations. There's different gloating dances because, I mean, you wouldn't want your gloating to get stale. You've got to keep that fresh. You don't want to get predictable in your gloating. We, we've turned gloating into a, an art form of entertainment, you know. In the NFL, when you score now, there's a need to do, like, complicated choreographed dances to celebrate. And, I mean, celebrating, that's okay. But one of the subtle symptoms of pride is gloating. Finding joy in other people's misery. And it's a fine line between self-confidence and gloating. It's something to really be on the lookout for. Around our house, you know, we love to play games, board games, card games. We've got some competitive people in the family. But we've got a rule that cuts down on the gloating. If you win the game, you've got to put it all back in the box. You've got to clean it up by yourself. So <laughs> that helps everybody stay a little bit humble. There's one more symptom of pride that's mentioned here. Look one more time at verse 12. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of the destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. That final symptom is boasting. There's an interesting figure of speech here in the original Hebrew. The verse literally says, you should not make great your mouth. Uh, the idea is, is make yourself great with your mouth. That's really what boasting is, talking yourself up. Uh, boasting is, is, is this attitude of superiority, and it's a symptom of pride, comparing yourself to somebody else, and you come out on top, you know? And, and we prideful humans, man, we're masters of, of checking all the right boxes without breaking the rules. So we don't really boast about ourselves. I mean, not openly. That's tacky, right? We're such masters of following the rules. We don't boast. Instead, we created the humble brag. It's all the fun of boasting without really breaking the rules, right? The humble brag. It's, this is when you go for the job interview and they'd say, hey, what's your biggest weakness? And you say, well, I'm kind of a perfectionist. <laughs> or, well, people tell me I work too hard. It's, it's boasting. I mean, we do that all the time. But it's a subtle symptom of pride. Jesus has words to say about boasting, too. His words are not recorded in the Gospels, as you might imagine, but in one of Paul's letters. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about boasting. He talks about how God kept him humble. He tells about a time when Jesus communicated very clearly to him about his own pride. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, Jesus tells Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God shows up in our lives more strongly when we're willing to be weak, to to shed pride. And Paul understood this message. He responds this way, the very next verse. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Boasting is a subtle symptom of pride, but God shows up the most in the life of the person that rejects boasting, who admits to their own weaknesses, their own dependency. So each of these five symptoms, they're they're subtle in their own way, but they all point to the same sickness of pride. Putting ourselves on top, trusting in our own solutions, our own security, building our house in the cleft of the rocks where no one can bring us down. So what's the solution to our sickness? That's the final section of the book of Obadiah. Look with me at verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you, God says. God warns the Edomites of a a day that's coming, a day of judgment, a day when the foundation of pride that they built won't help them. And just as Frank Lloyd writes, genius construction eventually came crashing down, so too will all the the false constructs of pride come crashing down for us. This sickness of pride, it's a barrier to our relationship with God. Throughout the Bible, God warns of this this day of the Lord, a day of of judgment when only the truth is going to stand. And part of the solution is simply just to recognize that God is in control, not us. Admit our own weaknesses. And Jesus talks about it too, about judgment. Even better, though, Jesus talks about the solution, how we can uh, shed pride and build our life on him. Not high in the cleft of the rock where we're just fooling ourselves into thinking that we're secure. Look at one more passage with me from Matthew chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Building our life on the words of God. Jesus himself is the solution. When we acknowledge what Jesus has done for us, then we can celebrate our weaknesses. When we are weak, he is very strong. We don't have to work hard to to build up a house in the cleft of the rocks, protecting ourselves from all signs of weakness. Jesus came and died and rose from the dead so that we don't have to live with pride anymore. He, he modeled the ultimate act of humility in giving up his place high in heaven for a place on the cross. He models a life of, of shedding pride and status in favor of self-sacrifice and humility. 
And notice what Jesus says. He says, whoever hears these words and puts them into practice is a wise man. That's wisdom. And in so many ways, wisdom's the opposite of pride, recognizing our own weakness, our own dependency. That's how Jesus lived, dependent on the Father, and that's how God wants us to live, putting our trust in him, not in any man-made solutions. So as we enter this new year, let's put these words into practice. Let's be on our guard of the, the, for the sneaky sickness of pride. Let's increase our dependency, and let's build our life on the foundation of Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you model the ultimate act of humility, Uh, not just being willing to send your son Jesus, not just being willing to live among us, that would be humble enough, but being willing to die, to die uh, like the most common of criminals on the cross, to take on suffering for our sake, Lord. And uh, pride really prevents us from coming to the full reality of what you've done for us, to, to embracing that and to acknowledging that you, you've given us a better way to live. And I pray as we uh, enter a new year, I pray that you would give each of us time to stop, to reflect, not just on resolutions and things like that, how we can be better, but on, on ways that, that you can be more a part of our lives. Give us what we need to be dependent on you. Give us what we need to put our trust in you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.